Please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Ruth chapter 1, from verse 6, right to the uh, verse 22. Then she, meaning Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the land of Moab, because she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them food. And so she departed from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go return, each of you, to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find a place of rest each one in the house of her husband. And she kissed them, and they raised their voices and wept. However, they said to her, No, but we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return, my, step, my daughters. Why would you go with me? Do I still have sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, if I were even to have a husband tonight and also give birth to sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is much more bitter for me than for you, because the hand of the Lord has come out against me. And they raised their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And then she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not plead with me to leave you or to turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you sleep, I will sleep. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and worse, if anything but death separates me from you. And when she saw that she was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her about it. And so they both went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? But she said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? And so Naomi returned, and with her Ruth the Moabites, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Let us pray. So Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this opportunity that we have of coming together on this day, the Lord's Day. And while it may be hot and wonderful outside, we have chosen the better part, to be at your feet, to be fed from your word, to sing praises to your name, 
and to lift our hearts in worship to you. You are worthy of this and more, almighty God. And we bless you for granting us this opportunity and the grace to be here together. We pray for those who are not with us, whether they be traveling or whether they, not, they be not well. May your hand of mercy be with them. Thank you for this opportunity. And we do not take it lightly, Lord, for we do not know how much longer your people are able to meet freely. So may we take all this moment in and give you the glory for it. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated, beloved. So last week we saw how Naomi and her husband Elkanah chose to leave Israel and go and live in a country called Moab. They had made what would be called today a career move. They were left full, as she mentions herself, and after 10 years in Moab, her husband is now dead along with her two sons. Naomi lives in Moab and all she has to show for her efforts are three tombstones. Now in the past I've shared the story of Serafina, the woman I met during my pastorate in Sicily. She too had lost her husband and her two sons in a very freak accident struck by semi-trailers while they were making their way back home. I remember her telling me how the story of Naomi resonated with her in a very unique way. She could identify with this woman's loss and her pain. Naomi never meant, of course, for all of this to happen. When they left Israel to go live in Moab, they were hoping for a better life. But instead of her dreams coming true, her nightmare took place. And while miles away from what, where she was supposed to be in Bethlehem in Judah, she realizes that she had made a terrible mistake because everything that was dear to, to her is now removed, her husband and her two sons. What is left are two daughter-in-laws, Orpah and Ruth, Moabites. Three widows now are grieving and speaking one to another, and that's what we have here. And they're talking to each other about what would be their next move. Our text today opens with these three widows sharing and crying and weeping and trying to do the right thing. Ruth and Orpah were natives of Moab, but Naomi was a native of Judah. And she was a Jew. She knew the Lord. And she had no business in being in this land of Moab since the Moabites had no rights, no right rather, in the inheritance of God's people. And now that her husband is no longer there, her two children are no longer there, she has to make a decision. She knows that staying a widow in Moab was not safe because widows were mistreated. They were abused. And often, just to survive, they would resort to prostitution. In ancient times, the primary purpose of women in marriage was to produce children and heirs to carry on the family line. They had estates, they had farms, and these needed to be passed on, they needed to be taken care of, and children was essential for their livelihood. So if a woman became a widow, she was in a serious disadvantage. A childless widow was even worse. 
she endured double adversity. She had no husband to provide for her and to protect her, and in addition, no son to carry on the family name and care for her in her old age. You can imagine what would happen to Naomi in Moab. She had no one, literally no one. Her family members in situations like this would typically um, pull away from someone who was a widow and a childless widow because they would see her as a curse and would want nothing to do with her. So for widows, it was a difficult situation. However, in Israel, things were different. The law of Moses made provisions for widows and orphans. If you read, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 24, 19 to 22, we read God telling his people and giving them these instructions. When you reap your harvest in your field and you forget a sheaf in the field, you're not to go back and get it. You let the sheaf alone. It shall belong to the stranger, to the orphan, to the widow, in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat the olive off your olive tree, you're not to search through the branches again. That shall be left for the stranger, the orphan, and for the widows. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you're not to go over it again. That shall be left for the stranger, the orphan, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I'm commanding you to do this thing. They were to remember their days in Egypt and how no one would give them anything. They had to work hard to even have a piece of bread. And remember when those who traveled through your land as strangers or foreigners and the orphans who have no one to provide for them and the widows who are on their own, you're going to leave whatever you can behind behind in your harvest, in your gathering of the grapes, and let, let the widows, the strangers, or the foreigners, and the orphans be taken care of. The Lord will bless you if you do this thing. God's care for widows was without ambiguity. And to ensure that this statute would not be overlooked, it was to be accompanied by a threat so God did. He accompanied it with a threat. If you read in Exodus chapter 22, verses 22 to 24, it says, You shall not oppress any widow or orphan. If you oppress him at all. Now, to oppress simply means to make them feel that they're at a disadvantage. It didn't mean simply to mistreat them. Okay? Just by making them feel they're at a disadvantage, they were oppressed. And he cries out to me. Notice, the widow cries out. The orphan cries out. I will assuredly hear his cry. And my anger will be kindled. And I will kill you with the sword. And your wives will become widows. And your children fatherless. A threat. What is God saying here? God says, I care about the widows. I care about the orphans. I care about the foreigners, the strangers that come through the land. You will treat them well. For in so doing, I will bless you. But should you not, I'm going to mistreat you. I'm going to make you pay for it. 
So what about Moab? What kind of laws did they have? Well, they had no laws. None whatsoever. And so for this reason, it was dangerous for Naomi to stay in Moab. And so Naomi is considering how to go back. She has two daughters, daughter-in-laws rather, that are Moabites. And she goes, I, I, I don't know what to do. I can't bring them back. They won't be well received. I can't stay. This is the, the dilemma they find themselves in. So let's consider these women's response. Let's consider first their choices. We have Naomi. She's a desperate woman. Verses uh, 8 and 9, but Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find a place of rest, each one in the house of her husband. She says, just go back. I'm going back to Bethlehem. You go back to your own homes. Naomi has a wonderful name. It means pleasant. But her life has been anything but pleasant. It has taken one bad turn after another. And it was because she had preferred Moab to Israel. James tells us that when we love the world more than the Lord, something awful takes place. James 4.4 says, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. A Christian can become an enemy of God in this sense. Not that God will destroy him, but God's hand of chastisement will come in his or her life, just like it did in Naomi's life. Naomi had befriended Moab, and in the process had lost intimacy with God and fellowship with God's people. And she paid a high price for her mistake. This was a drastic loss. As you listen to Naomi's words here, you can easily see that she is in a place of defeat and hopelessness. First, in verses 8 and 9, she has no hope for the present. She has nothing left, only three tombstones. She had come full, but she has no income, no place to live. Everything she had before um, coming into Moab and leaving Israel is now gone. She has nothing to offer her daughters-in-law. And then if we read 11 to 13, she has no hope even for the future. Naomi's future is bleak. She goes, look, even if you were to wait till I have children, which is unlikely, and that they grow up and marry you, she says, it won't happen. Will, they, will you wait till they grow up? That's called the law of leveret marriage. It was in place at that time. So in Israel, again, if someone died and a widow was left, and she was childless, the, the brother would come and do his duty to provide a child, an heir, so that the estate belonging to the brother would not go lost. And so she goes, look, even if you were to wait for me to have children, I can't give them to you and husband, that you'll be too old, and they, they won't happen. Please go back. She's full of defeat. She has hopelessness and despair written all over her face, seeing how her future is so bleak, she is encouraging, or better yet, discouraging her daughters-in-law, because that's the only thing she has. She is so downcasted, so destroyed, so down in every situation that she says, just go back, please. This is more hard for me than it is for you. Naomi is so dejected 
that while she seeks to encourage, she is discouraging and making them feel miserable. The Bible speaks of a time when the chastising hand of God was on his people. This is how Isaiah describes that moment in the history of God's people. Isaiah 26, verse 16, Lord, they sought you in distress. They could only whisper a prayer. Your discipline was upon them. You see, when you're being disciplined, when you're chastised, how can you pray? You could only whisper a prayer. And that's what we see in Naomi. She has nothing in her. She has no strength. And with her last words, she's just telling her daughters-in-law to make the right choice for themselves. In the meanwhile, she's whispering a prayer, asking for mercy from God for herself. And that's Naomi, the dejected, the desperate one here in this picture. Then we have Orpah. She's the opportunist. In verses 14 and 15, we read that the daughters-in-law, upon hearing these words from Naomi, raised their voices and wept again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And then she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Orpah is a picture of someone who doesn't know God. This is a person who, after considering the claims of the gospel, turns his or her back to Christ and deliberately embraces the world. Her response, humanly speaking, makes perfect sense. Who would not do what she did? You cannot look at Orpah and say, that's not wise, Orpah. No, that's the right thing to do. It makes perfect sense. What makes no sense is what the writer of the Hebrews says, when he writes about another character. In Hebrews 11, 24 to 26, this is what we read. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the temporary pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt where he was looking to the reward. Does that make sense? Does it make sense where you're in a position of wealth, of prestige, you're in a good place, and then you turn your back to all that, and you wander off into the desert? Does that make sense? No, it doesn't. What Moses did makes no sense. What Orpah did makes perfect sense, humanly speaking. Why did Moses do this? Because Moses had his eyes on the invisible and not on the visible. Orpah had set her eyes on the visible. She considered her situation. I don't have a husband. I'm, going, I'm a widow. I'm at a disadvantage. What am I going to do? And so out of her fear and, and uh, situation of distress, she decides to A, return to her people. I'm going back to my family. I'm going back to the ones I know. Now, there are people who choose their family above Christ. There are people that make that decision to say, I'm going to be with my family. I'm not going to turn my back on them. They've always been there for me. I'm going to be with my family and not embrace the cross and the gospel. Jesus said these words to his followers one day, the one who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. 
The one who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And the one who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. The one who has found his life will lose it. The one who has lost his life on my account will find it. You see, there are affections in this world. We have family and family is important. But our family must not take priority over the claims of Christ. He has first right. And Orpah didn't make that decision. She chose family above the Lord. The other one, the other thing she does rather, is that she returns to her idols. After considering Naomi's life and the suffering she endured, Orpah must have said to herself, I'm not keen about this God. I want a God that gives me freedom to do what I want to do. You see, Orpah decided against the true God that wants to be worshipped alone. God does not allow split worship. God is not a God of plurality where he says, you can worship me and have your idols as well. God deserves our complete allegiance. The pagan gods were far more loose. You can worship Ashtoreth, Baal, and you can go to Molech, whatever god you wish. It made no difference. All gods were accepting towards one another because, of course, they're fake. They're pagan gods. False gods made people feel safe in worshiping other gods. The true god wanted worship only for himself. There are many like that even today. As long as they can get blessings from God, they will stay, but really their allegiance is not to God. It's to comfort. It's to ease, convenience. And the moment they realize that the God of the Bible demands obedience, they choose to walk away like Orpah. And then we have Ruth. Ruth who sees the invisible. Verses 16 and 17 we read, But Ruth said these words to Naomi. Do not plead with me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go I will go and where you sleep I will sleep. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die I will die and there I will be buried. And may the Lord do so to me and worse. If anything but death separates me from you. So Ruth is a picture of a sinner whose eyes have been opened to see the beauty and the riches of Christ. What one person deemed ludicrous, another one considers to be priceless. Orpah says, nah, I'll go back. Ruth says to something she knows nothing about. She says, I'm drawn to this. Why? She believed the gospel by faith. That's what it is. She is a picture of a real convert. She enters the family of God and makes a total commitment to follow the Lord forever. Not because of what she can get. She gets nothing. She's offered nothing. Right? But because of the call of God on her life. The call of God. That's why some are believers and some are not. It's not because some people made the right choice. We can't make right choices when it comes to conversions. We don't have the insight. We don't know. We're no better than a sheep. Can a sheep choose a shepherd? It's the shepherd that looks for the sheep that's lost and has wandered off. And so the Lord seeks us. And because she felt that call, she makes this confession of faith. Paul, writing to the Romans, speaks of the mystery 
and of the beauty of this amazing call on our lives. Romans 8.29, For those whom he foreknew, God also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those whom he predestined, he also called and those, and these rather whom he called, he also justified, and these whom he justified, he also glorified. He called us. He called us. And it's a holy calling. Ruth made a decision based on a divine call. No one makes this decision in a vacuum. No one. The heart must be worked upon by the power of the Holy Spirit because none of us are smart enough and good enough to make this kind of decision that has eternal um, value and eternal impacts our destiny. God must enable us. And this is what we see in Ruth. God enabled her to make this decision. Look at the remarkable statement. Ruth is not better than Orpah. How could she come up with these words? How could she come up with such a statement of faith? She is the same. She's a Moabite. She is no better but her eyes were opened by the Lord to see the invisible. So for this reason, we see first Ruth going all the way. Even though Naomi has nothing to offer her, come what may, Ruth decides that she will stick with Naomi. Now, obviously, someone had worked on her heart. She is proof positive that God will speak to the hearts of sinners regardless of, of how God's people behave, regardless of Naomi's testimony or lack thereof, Ruth believed. It's remarkable to see this. Only God can elicit this kind of response. Thank God for those he, who love him, even when he doesn't give them things immediately. Secondly, we see Ruth responds by faith. Right? She adopts a new family, a new God by faith. She received new life, a new Lord, a new, a, a new totally a new perspective. She devotes, devotes every second remaining of her life to walking with the Lord. There would be no looking back. Now, if we jump to Jesus' day, we read of a group of people that after the multiplication of the bread, they come to Jesus and try to take him by force to be king. They realize, wow, with a few loaves and a few fish, Jesus fed thousands. He must be the Messiah. He must be the king. He is the solution to all our problems. He's going to drive out the Romans. He's going to bring in prosperity. We're going to live on the, 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 on, on a successful and prosperous life. But Jesus turns to them and says, you must eat my flesh and you must drink my blood. What's he talking about? The cross. In other words, you have to believe that I am the lamb who's going to die for the sins of the world. I'm the lamb. You must eat my flesh. You must drink. Well, it says in John 6, 66, that as a result of this, many of his disciples left and would no longer walk with him. They refused. Think about it. In one moment, they became so fickle that in one moment they saw him as a hero and then they saw him as a loser. And so Jesus said to the 12, you do not want to leave also, do you? He tells them, why don't you leave as well? 
He did, he did what Naomi did. Go back. Leave. He didn't beg them to stay. Leave. And Simon answered. I love Simon's answer here, right? Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. It's not because my fishing board is going to become all of a sudden a fishing enterprise. It's not because all of a sudden I'm going to become the minister of defense. It's not because I'm going to be seated on some throne. No, you're not giving me anything. But there's something about your word, and I'm drawn to your word. Words of eternal life. Notice Ruth's words to Naomi. Your people shall be my people, your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. There I will be buried. She's saying no to her kinsmen. She's saying yes to something she knows nothing about. The only thing she had uh, as a faint memory or, or a faint testimony of what Israel was about was a woman who's defeated and dejected in every sense. A impoverished widow. That's all she had that spoke to her of Israel. <laughs> what a choice. Did she come to understand this on her own? No. No more than Peter understood. It was all a pure work of grace. And which of these three best describes you today? Maybe you are a Naomi who feels the hand of God, the hand of chastisement on your life. And right now you are not much of an encouragement to anyone. But you are humbling yourself before the hand, mighty hand of God. That's a good place to be. That's a good place to be. Or maybe you are an Orpa who looks at the Christian life based on what it can give you. And you see Christianity only on these terms. What can it give me? You're not interested in picking up your cross and paying the price. Or maybe you are a Ruth. You don't know why, but you are mysteriously drawn to the cross. This instrument of torture is for you the instrument of life, of new life. You see that you are a sinner deserving of judgment and that Christ paid for your sins, that he died on the cross for you. And you are drawn to this Lord, to this Christ that died so freely for you. You realize that it should have been you dying for your sins and not the Son of God. And so you respond like Ruth. You respond by faith. And you embrace Jesus with all your heart. Now let's look at the commitment of these two women as they set off towards Bethlehem. It says in verse 19, they both went on until they came to Bethlehem. The trip from Moab to Bethlehem would have at least taken seven to ten days. This was a treacherous trip. Two lonely women in the middle of the forest and in woods and rising up maybe to 2,000 feet of climbing and then descending right back into Judah, into Bethlehem. And repentance is very much the same way. It's the picture of repentance. Repentance is not an easy thing. It's a difficult thing. When we leave sin and when we turn our backs to it. I know a young man right now who has, is saying no to drugs. And he's fighting. He's repenting. And he says, I'm drawn sometimes. To it. He's, Just keep repenting. Keep humbling yourself until you are cleansed of it. Remember that the Lord is your fullness of life. 
There is no fullness outside of the Lord. So they persevered to the place where God is praised. Judah. Judah means praise. That's what it means. They had left Judah to go into Moab, where there was no praise. Where would they, who would they praise in Moab? The gods of the Moabites. But here in Judah, God was praised. And they come there to this tribe, and, and praise comes forth from their hearts once again. If you wanted to be in the place where praise would flow from her life. A believer prefers to stay away from the fellowship of saints, does not have a heart of praise, has a heart that is compromised with the world, and they cannot be honoring the Lord in that frame of mind. They persevered to be with God's people. Verse 19, and when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? God's people missed Naomi. And Naomi missed God's people. And when they saw her, they were stirred in their spirit. I've seen people that have come back to the fellowship after sometimes years. And when I see them, I'm sure you feel the same way. I'm stirred within. I'm so happy to see them. I'm so happy to hug them once again and to make them know that they are part of the fellowship. Though they were far away and they were missed, they were still not forgotten. We prayed for them. God's people were stirred in seeing Naomi. Now, there are people that feel awkward in coming back to the fellowship. They feel that people are gawking, looking at them, asking questions, saying, why come you've been away and all this. They think these things. Was it awkward for Naomi? It sure was. It was more than awkward. It was humiliating because she says, I went, I left full. I'm coming back empty. Empty, completely empty. It was more than awkward. It was very humiliating. In fact, she, write, she even says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Naomi means pleasant. I'm, a, I'm full of God's bitterness. God's hand has been heavy on my life. But she's back with the people of God. She's back with Judah, and therefore praise is going to start flowing from her lips. She has no idea what is in store for her now that she is back. She has no idea. Psalm 16, verse 3, David writes these words about the people of God. As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the majestic ones. All my delight is in them. Is that how we see the church? Do we look at a Christian and say, that's my delight? These are the people I love. These are people that I will be spending eternity with. These are the ones that I worship God with. These are the ones that God has made me one with, one loaf, one fellowship, one church. Do I see them as that? Or do I see believers with a suspicious eye? Do I criticize my fellow believers? Do I look down on them? Do I feel superior to them? All these are questions we should be answering. Naomi is back and she is humbled by God's hand and she feels humiliated. She feels that God has been harsh with her, but she submits and she accepts the chastising hand of God on her life. 
She accepts the fact that God has taken away her husband and God has taken away her two sons and she humbles herself. She goes, don't call me pleasant. There's nothing pleasant about my life. She is not reproaching God. She says, God has brought me back. She believes in the sovereignty of God. It's remarkable. And then they persevered to God's provision. She goes to Bethlehem. I told you before, Bethlehem is house of bread. That's what it means, house of bread. It's interesting that that's where the Lord was born. He was born, the bread of life, the bread of heaven, in Bethlehem. Because he is the true bread. And it was in the city of Bethlehem that Naomi, as a child, had received bread. And she was nourished not only on the physical bread, but on the word of the Lord. She had left all of this. Now that she's back, she's grateful that she's back home where God would provide again the bread that she needed, the word of God. Now let's look at the commotion. It says the city was stirred. Upon their arrival, the city was in an uproar. Not only because Naomi had, was back, but also because she was back with a Moabite. That was weird. A Gentile woman. Can you imagine the people's reaction? They knew the law. They know, no Moabite will have any inheritance, none whatsoever. And here she was with a Moabite. What are we going to do with this? How do we handle this? He must have said to herself. But Naomi spoke of God's sovereignty. The Lord has brought me back. Why did Naomi not stop Ruth? Because she saw the resolute heart in Ruth. She saw that something sovereign had happened in Ruth that was unusual. Her natural inclination should have been to go back to her people, to her family, and to, to the, her idols. But here's Ruth so determined. She saw God's sovereignty at work, and she therefore brought her along. She, then she, we see it as Naomi accepts the discipline of God in her life. Verse 20, as I said earlier, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. She acknowledged the discipline that God had brought into her life. She understands that God had been chastising her and that that chastisement was responsible in being the catalyst in bringing um, Naomi back to Bethlehem. Naomi was so downcast so dejected about the tragedy, the pain, the loss that had come into her life that she wanted to change her name to Mara, bitter. But when the Holy Spirit mentions her in verse 22, he calls her Naomi. Why? Because while you may look at your life and you may say, wow, things are not going right. There's so much pain right now. and I don't know. I, don't, I look at the future and it's so bleak. God knows what he has in store for those who are his. She may have been full of anguish, and she may have been full of pain and hopelessness, but God had something in store for her. Notice that the, how the people asked, is this Naomi? Is this Naomi? The people of Bethlehem were amazed at her appearance. She was no longer that beautiful, happy young girl that left Bethlehem. She was now downcasted, curved, and weary and older, and she had no more that, that leap in her step, but God was going to change things around for her. It was not going to be Mara 
it was going to be pleasant because God had pleasant blessings in store for this woman. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the human heart, all that God has prepared for those who love him. You see, right now, you may be looking at your life and saying, there's so much pain, there's so much sorrow, but you don't have got a clue as to what God has prepared for those who love him, for those who belong to him, for those who are drawn to the cross, drawn to him, and are his and his forever. Isn't that a wonderful truth? We can rejoice because God does not move in our life according to our expectation. He's the one who does exceedingly more that which we think or imagine according to the power that is at work in us. Let us pray together and thank him. Heavenly Father, the story of Naomi speaks to all of us. And we're so thankful for how these women have a story to tell because you have given us this story. And each one of us can identify with either Naomi, with Orpah, or with Ruth. Lord, I just pray, I pray there would be many today that would simply say, I want to do God's will. I want to be in the center of God's will. Whether they be coming back like Naomi, or they're because they're embracing Christ as their Savior like Ruth. Father, be glorified in the lives of everyone, not only those who are following here today, but those who will follow online. We pray, O oh Lord, that you'd make your grace known in a time of such confusion and chaos. Be glorified in your people and draw many who are still in darkness, I pray. Draw them to yourself. And this I ask in the precious and glorious name of our Lord. Amen and amen.